Chapter One of the Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Jim Conrad's Find. Jim Conrad, a young Englishman lounging about Paris at the time when this story begins, found a ring which he at once assumed to have a mystery connected with it. It appealed to his young and romantic fancy, and it seemed to tell him that it had come in his way with a mission for him to fulfil, and perhaps even a story for him to tell. It clearly, as he thought, told a tale of a lover's quarrel, and he was in the mood just then to sympathise with anybody into whose love a quarrel had pierced. In any case, all stories about rings had a curious fascination for Conrad. There was the ring of Polycrates, there was Aladdin's ring, there was the ring of Amasis, there was the ring put upon the finger of the statue of Venus, and suddenly clasped and clutched by the enchanted marble. There was the ring with which the doge used to wed the Adriatic. There was the ring that Pharaoh gave to Joseph, and there was the ring of Solomon, and Portia's ring, and the ring of Posthumus in Cymbeline, and all manner of other rings in poetry, legend, and romance. Conrad delighted in all these rings, and was a devoted admirer of the ring and the book. How, then, could he avoid being impressed by the fact that a ring with an apparently mysterious story encircling it had come in his way, and invited him to unlock the heart of its mystery? Jim Conrad was passing by the Arch of Triumph, the Arch of the Star, one morning in Paris, and entered the Bois de Boulogne. It was a morning in late summer or early autumn. Jim Conrad came to Paris just then because he wanted to have Paris all to himself. The Parisians would have gone away, and the English and Americans would not yet have come. There was only one piece being played at all the Parisian theatres just then, and that bore the name of Relâche. Jim Conrad tried even to see the Venus of Milo at the Louvre, but on his first attempt he found that the gallery was closed for the business of repairs, and he made no further attempt. "'Let it go,' he said, "'as everything else goes for me,' from which it will be inferred that poor Jim Conrad was in some mental trouble. So he was. He had come to Paris in order to relieve his mind by making it more miserable than ever, and brooding alone and lonely over his trouble. Alone and lonely may seem at first, to the irreverent reader, to be mere repetition and tautology. The irreverent reader, if he will please to devote his powerful mind to one moment's thinking over the subject, will see that he is entirely wrong. One may be alone without being lonely. We all find it healthy and satisfactory to be alone now and then, but to be lonely is the blood-poisoning of the soul. Poor Jim Conrad was lonely. The girl whom he loved, or fancied he loved, had thrown him over, 
and married a rich man old enough to be her father. Many a London young man no older than Jim would have taken this coolly enough, and accepted it as part of his ill luck. Girls will do these things, they do them every day, Fred to-day, George to-morrow, Arthur yesterday, and then, too, the lads sometimes throw over the lasses, as every wise man's son doth know. But, unfortunately, Jim Conrad had a fatal trick of taking things seriously. At least he took things seriously where his heart and his affections were at all concerned. He was an odd sort of young man. He was decidedly good-looking, he was tall and well-made, and wore his clothes with the unconscious way of one who has been born to show off clothes to advantage. He was great in all manner of games and sports, and was a capital amateur actor and manager. He was poor. He was the younger son of a younger son, and his own personal property amounted to five hundred a year all told, the money left him by his mother, who was dead but he was determined to make his way in literature, for he had, from his college days, an inborn passion for literature, and he saw a great career before him, a career which had not yet quite begun. He had written nothing, at least nothing for publication, but he meant to write. His friends had always said, "'Why don't you write something, Jim?' and he proposed, with all the confidence of another Montrose, to make the girl he loved, or thought he loved, famous by his pen. The girl, who had at first been taken by his face, his figure, his clothes, and his manners, did not care tuppence about being made famous by his pen. She captivated an elderly millionaire, and she calmly threw Jim Conrad over. She told him in the very frankest way what she was doing, and why she was doing it. "'I should like very much to marry you, Jim. I would rather marry you than any other man if you had the oof. But then you haven't, and I don't believe you'll ever get it. And I can't wait all my life. And I've got a good chance now with this old fool. And, of course, I am not an idiot, and I don't mean to throw my chance away.' Perhaps he'll die soon, and leave me a widow, and then I don't say that you and I may not arrange matters. Then Jim left her. He saw that he had thrown his time utterly away on her. He saw that she never could have been the woman he had supposed her to be. He found a great desert in his heart. To have loved and lost may be better than never to have loved at all, but to have loved and to find out that the object of one's love is not worth a single thought, even in the way of anger, is not a cheering experience to look back upon. That was Jim Conrad's condition when he went over to Paris to try for some way of distracting himself from the memory of his folly. He did not even carry self-respect along with him. How could he feel any respect for himself who had been taken in by a woman like that? So he wandered listless through the Bois de Boulogne, eating his own heart. 
he had come to paris not merely because he was fond of paris although he was but because he had had much of his bringing up there and he thought it would do him good to go back to the place which he had known before he knew her in the mind of some men and perhaps of a very few women place and association go together like substance and shadow there are men there are certainly men i will not vouch for women to whom every place they know floats double the place and its shadow the association therefore jim conrad in his fancied distress is there any fancied distress does not the mere fancy make it real sought out his old haunts in paris because they brought him associations of a happy careless time before he knew her he strode over a high railing and lost himself in an utterly unfrequented glade of the artificial wood he wanted to go away even from the sound of feet the sound of voices he did not care to hear the nursemaids babbling to the children. Like all disappointed people, he was for a time a thorough egotist. He saw his own trouble in the grass, in the sky, in the crowd, in the solitude. Suddenly, as he plunged along across the well-kept grass, he was called away from the thought of his own trouble by seeing a shining object on the turf before him. It was something that glittered at him out of the grass, and that, in an odd sort of way, seemed to appeal to him. He stooped and took it up. It was a ring, a thick, heavy ring of gold. It was apparently a ring of antique make and fashion, naturally he looked round to see if anybody was within call who might have dropped it no there was no one anywhere in sight he had the glade all to himself yet it was plain from the first that the ring had been lately dropped or thrown away the night had been rainy the early morning had kept up the rain the ring was as dry as if it had been dropped on the egyptian sands in front of the sphinx near the pyramids it was a ring which might have been worn by man or woman a man with a hand at all slender could have worn it on his little finger a woman who had not a hand too solid could have worn it on her middle or even her third finger it looked more like a man's ring certainly it was so solid and heavy curious jim thought how any one could drop so heavy a ring and not notice its absence from the finger to which it belonged anyhow he took it for granted that the owner would soon come back to recover the lost possession and as he had nothing particular to do with himself he resolved to wait until the owner came and gladdened his heart or hers by its restoration so he lounged about and sat on the grass and leaned on the fence and wove odd fancies about the ring two hours idled and slipped away in this dreamy fashion and no one came to look for the ring in fact no one came near him then an idea occurred to him was the ring dropped at all or was it not rather thrown away 
it pleased jim to fancy himself already a writer of romance and as such able to analyse human nature and out of the merest glimpses of observation light up a whole story so he set to thinking out a story and nobody came near to interrupt his thoughts or to claim the ring he settled down to the conclusion that the ring was thrown away and thrown away by a woman it was flung away in a woman's impatient burst of anger and scorn it was a question of slighted love of faith cruelly broken it was the gift of a false lover oh yes jim felt quite sure the ring was thrown away by a woman he felt that she must be young he felt that she must be beautiful he felt for the time as sure of this as if elderly ladies never dropped a ring never threw away a ring never were disappointed in their lovers as if ugly women never had occasion to bemoan the perfidy of their pretended admirers other things being equal one would naturally have thought the action of a woman disappointed in love would suggest a lack rather than a superabundance of attractions but jim just then did not choose to think it so he saw ariadne deserted by theseus likewise he convinced himself and here his reasoning was more plausible and even more sound that a love affair of the purer order love affair between the unmarried was concerned and not an intrigue of any discreditable kind there was indeed as will be seen a third possibility which did not then come into his mind he said to himself that no woman disappointed in any scandalous intrigue would throw away in a public place a ring which might afterwards come to be a piece de conviction against herself such a woman might have thrown the ring into the seine but she would not have flung it recklessly on the turf of the bois de boulogne no the ring could betray nothing of which its wearer was ashamed she was disappointed and she did not care who knew it let it go all why might it not have been a man who threw that ring away suppose a man had been given a ring by his sweetheart and she had proved false and they had quarrelled why might not he have flung it away there in the bois de boulogne jim reasoned this out too a man would not have been likely so jim reasoned out the case to throw away a ring he would probably have sent it back at once to the woman who had proved faithless or he would simply have left it in his desk or in one of his drawers and tried to forget all about it what puzzled him a little was why if the bois de boulogne was chosen for the flinging away of the ring that particular spot should have been chosen then an explanation occurred to him which fitted in with his theory of the deserted and disappointed woman whose grief had suddenly flamed up in passion the place in which he had found the ring was not a place where women would naturally walk it could only be got at by scrambling over the railing 
and running the risk, no doubt, of official remonstrance and reproval from angry police authority. It would be very hard indeed for any woman, even if she wore the divided skirt, to scramble over that railing. And why should an ordinary petticoated woman want to scramble over it in the broad light of day? So Jim Conrad settled finally down to his conclusion that the ring had not been dropped, but that it had been thrown away. Some woman, standing on the other side of the railing, and without the least idea of crossing the barrier, had deliberately taken off the ring and flung it away, flung it as far as she could, from her hand, and from her heart, and from her life flung it away in the sad and sickly hope that she was flinging memory and disappointment and disillusion along with it. Then Jim began to study the ring itself more closely than he had done before. It had a number of letters beautifully enamelled round the outside, each letter in a different colour. Inside the ring were some figures in dark blue enamel. The letters round the outside gave no indication whatever of where one ought to begin in order to decipher the meaning, if any meaning they had. Jim, of course, assumed that they had a meaning. No mortal takes the pains of having letters enamelled on a ring if they have absolutely nothing to express. The letters ran thus, if one began at random, suppose with the letter C. C-Y-O-F-A-R-A-A-T-N-I-C-S-I-O-S-R Not much to be made of that, at the first glance, at all events. On the inner surface of the ring were the figures 3290, and following, with a little space between, 14293. That was all. Evening began to lower, and Jim left the place, taking the ring with him, and went home to his hotel. After a night and day of puzzling, he began to flatter himself, and he believed he had a special gift in the deciphering of hieroglyphics, he began to think that a suspicion of meaning was dawning on him. His theory was that one must begin with the letter F, and take every alternate letter following, and by this process you get the name Francisco. Then you begin again with the second R, which was not used up in the Francisco, and go backwards on the same alternating principle, and thus you get the name Rosita. Francisco and Rosita, common names enough in Italian or in Spanish. This reading, to be sure, left two letters unaccounted for, the Y that follows the first C, and the A that follows the F, and which were taken in by neither of the names. The figures, he took it, were dates written straight out. Clearly enough, they meant the third day of the second month of 1890, and the fourteenth day of the second month of 1893. The two unused letters were they not simply the Spanish form of alas taken backwards? Here he could find no better solution. He had then got to this, 
that the ring symbolized some sort of love affair between a francisco and a rosita presumably italian or spanish or one italian and the other spanish that the eras of the love affair were the third of february eighteen ninety and valentine's day in eighteen ninety three three years and a little more and that the ring bore melancholy evidence of something ill-omened in its short word of pathos or of despair what was the meaning of the zone of time if such an expression may be used which was indicated by the two sets of figures with their several dates why did the lover's era limit its enamelled record to the days between early eighteen ninety and early eighteen ninety three was that done in advance clearly it could not have been nobody whether man or woman would think of having a ring engraved with a funeral inscription in advance of love's funeral there are those who have their gravestones cut and inscribed long in advance but no one ever heard of a gravestone with the date imprinted in advance no sane human beings would have thought of engaging themselves for three years and a few days and no more an engagement which was bound to last so long might surely be expected by the lovers to last until its very fulfilment at least that is how a pair of lovers might naturally be expected to reason out the question of course the two dates might have been meant to mark two stepping-stones in the love career the day when the lovers first met for example and the day when they got married but then why the syllable of despair and why was the ring flung away death in its natural course could have nothing to do with the tale no one flings away a memorial of a beloved companionship cleft cruelly apart by death even misunderstanding quarrel and rancour do not often survive a death dead dead that quits all scores says meg merrilies in guy mannering End of chapter 1